Welcome, welcome, welcome to the John of All Trades podcast. I'm your guest host, Simon Lomax. You're probably wondering, who is this guy? Well, I'm a friend of John's, and it's his 100th episode of the pod. Maybe you don't know that. You know it now. To mark the occasion, John has asked me to ask him some questions. He wants me to interview him to turn the tables. John and I have known one another a a few years now, and in fact, uh, I was a guest on the podcast uh, a couple of years ago. So when he uh, when he asked me to interview him, I jumped at the chance. So I'm going to ask John about his job, his work, about the podcast, how he puts it together, what other work he does when he's not doing the podcast, and most importantly, I'm going to ask John about what he's learned about people, about the human condition, about how we get through life along the way. I'm really jealous of this uh, this podcast that he has. I think it's a, a great project, and I think that he gets a lot of really valuable insights from the people that he talks to on a regular basis. And so I'm really hoping that uh, I'm really hoping to learn some things from him and uh, and find out more about what he's learned along the way. So you've heard more than enough from me for now. You'll hear more from me in a little bit. So here is my interview with John. Uh, for his 100th uh, 100th podcast. I hope you like it. Thanks. What's funny about this is we're in my basement, but when I interview people down here, I sit where you're sitting. Yeah. And so now now I'm sitting over here just so I can, just so it feels different. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Right. That's Um, good. Yeah. It's kind of weird, man. I don't know. Well, I mean, I'll. I promise not to be mean. Okay. (laughs) I can't promise that I won't. I can't promise that I won't ask any stupid questions, but I'll do my best. So uh, this is your hundredth episode. Yep. You're the guest, and (laughs) I'm the guest host. That's right. Okay. So everyone is following along. I think so far. I think so. So I'm going to turn the tables on you a little bit, but I wanted to ask you. You know, you interviewed me two years ago. Right. And then you asked me to interview you. I wonder if you have some clue as to why I said yes. <laughs> why would you say yes? Well, I like to think it has to do with my superior pitching ability, <laughs> which is how I get other guests. There, uh, but, there is something to that. And I mean, that's that's one of the things that I think is something I underrate about doing this show in terms of some of the challenges I face is because, I mean, I'm media pitching people all the time. It's like, you should write about this. You should do this. Well, now it's like, I am the media, you know? <laughs> so it's almost like I have to invert the formula on its head. Mm-hmm. But to answer your question, my suspicion and my hope is that you enjoyed your time on my show mm-hmm. and that you found value in telling the story that you did. And when presented with the opportunity to put it on the other foot, uh, you said, yeah, that's something I could do because the way the show unfolded was good. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I'm happy to do the same for you. I don't know. I'm speculating, yeah. though. Yeah. No, that's definitely true. I really, I, I enjoyed it so much more than I thought I would. And I shared it with 
friends, family. I've used it professionally. Been really good. But you've gotten mileage out of this professionally. Yeah, I think so. Good. I mean, it was a it was a departure for me, John, <laughs> to kind of talk about my, you know. Uh, talk about the personal things instead of just the stuff that I'm, you know, whatever you're advocating for. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But you know, the the big reason that I w- was thrilled at the chance to to sit and ask you these questions is because you know people fascinate me and how they get through life, what they do with their lives, what makes them happy, the challenges they have to overcome. All of that just just fascinates me. And right. you've been doing this on a sort of routine basis. Now, basically, a hundred times, right? So, I figure you've got all of this sort of insight from you know all these conversations you've had with people, where they've really, you know, opened themselves up and told you things about about their lives that maybe they haven't told other people before, or or don't get to tell, you know, certainly don't record it, right, in a, in a podcast. And mm-hmm. so, I'm hoping that I can get kind of a concentrated dose. If I just sit and talk with you, because you right. know, and get and get some of that wisdom from sitting and talking a hundred times with people about you know about their about their jobs about their lives about what makes them tick it's so, interesting so that's what i'm hoping no pressure well no of course not but uh it's funny sitting here because when i go into an interview i don't normally with a handful of exceptions uh i don't normally go in with notes or a list of questions but you're old school print journalist so you like you unfurled this yeah. this piece of paper and i go all right so <laughs> so we're we're doing this for real. I remember I I, I did it for uh, for Kyle Clark because that's sort of a high stakes interview, mm-hmm. and I don't want to. You know, it's like one of those things. I got to come correct when I'm talking to him. Yeah. And the other one was Brian O'Connell from Renegade Brewing because he had just done a Denver podcast like two weeks before I did mine, mm-hmm. and so I listened to it and I go, shit, that's like exactly what I wanted to ask him. Mm-hmm. And so I go, all right, I have to come up with new questions. And in order to do that properly, otherwise I'm going to slip into the rote sort of routine bullshit. So I made sure to have a list of very pointed questions that were different from the show he just did. Yeah. I give him incentive to, to push it out because it's like, do you want to hear me say the same thing again? That's terrible, like in terms of how I convey value to him. So anyway, yeah. seeing that, I'm like, all right, here yeah. we go. I'm just really bad at ad lib. <laughs> all right, fair <laughs> enough. Well, play to your strengths, right? <laughs> So let's go back to the beginning. Um, so you started this podcast, I think, in, what was it, March of 2014? Correct. Why'd you want to do it? Okay, so the big thing about this is when I was at cocktail parties or just getting together with friends and I'd meet new people, The, I mean, we did this in our advocacy training that we did for employees where what's the first question anyone asks you? What do you do? So what do you do? And... I was always sort of compelled by the answers that people gave me. And I wanted to always dig in more about what went into their actual job. After doing this a bunch, one of my best friends, uh, this cat named Jason, I used to, I founded a website with him and he's like my writing partner. We sort of creatively married in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. He said, the thing I like about when you're talking to someone about their job is, you know, the next question to ask that keeps the conversation interesting. I go, okay, well, that's something then. Like, that's that's not nothing. Uh, additionally, I fell in love with podcasts somewhere around 2010 because I was working at the Energy Drink, which I've alluded to a few times, yeah. and was just really, really unhappy. Mm. That, that was a bad fit for me for a number of reasons. And I started listening to This American Life a lot, and I listened to The BS Report with Bill Simmons, and 
shortly thereafter, I got into the Nerdist and uh, WTF, and I go, God, this is a great format. Like, I love this long form. Oh, and the Adam Carolla podcast, because he was, he had just gotten laid off from CBS radio, and he goes, what do I do? I have this non-compete clause. I can't go to another station. I'll just start a podcast. And Mm -hmm. he just started talking to anyone who would come on, and he was focused largely on the journey. Right. And so I go, wow, that that seems like something I can do. Simultaneously, my good friend Brad had a podcast called Real Nerds, and Real Nerds had been going forever. And he said, "Man, this is this is so much fun, and you know, you're a great writer, but it it might be easier for you to just say some of the things that you write about, or you know, talk to interesting people." And I go, "Okay, but I, you know, podcast right. seems hard. Like I need equipment for that outside of my brain and a keyboard." And so he said, it's really not that hard. And he sent me this tutorial and I bought all the stuff. Like you can start your own podcast for like less than 500 bucks. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty great. The barrier to entry is pretty low. Oh, that's, that's great. Well, so what else was, what else was going through your mind at the time? I mean, was it a risk professionally to start something creative like this, you know, with a day job? (laughs) Uh, a totally valid question that, I would say yes to if I hadn't done it several times before already. Because when I got out of college, I started writing for this website that no longer exists called The Seventh Level. And it was like, I, I love the guy who does it. It's it's this guy named Mike who calls himself The Seventh Level. Why? I have no I idea. Say seventh Level of what? Yeah, really. <laughs> um, but uh, he recruited me because I had written about pro wrestling for so long on the internet. And I, I met, I had like a big web of contacts. And then I was reviewing music for a while on this site called 411 Mania. By the way, I'm a shitty music reviewer. Like I just, I don't have the vocabulary. I don't have the musical knowledge. All I talk about is how the music makes me feel. <laughs> Which, it's not subjective. No. So it's like, you know, I, this is this song relates to my ex-girlfriend. Uh, eight out of ten. And so I started writing for him right after I got out of college. A couple of years later... I got the itch to start a website and I started Crew Jones Society while I was working at MGA Communications. Mm. And so I I was used to sort of marrying the two things. And what I do at MGA is I'd get an idea for an article because we were like a daily comedy website. Yeah. And I'd sketch it out over my lunch break and I you know, I'd get the bones and I'd have usually there's like one line or one hook that you sort of write around. And I'd write that and then I'd email it to myself and then I'd work on it at night. And right. what's what's weird is when you're doing a daily comedy blog, you end up sacrificing a ton of your social life mm-hmm. just being in front of your computer all the time because, I mean, it's, when you're writing, it's a monster that eats. Yeah. With this, yes, there was a little bit more high uh, – a, a little bit of pressure in terms of, you know, are they going to get upset about this? And I came to find out later they did. But not, not for doing the thing on the side. Mm-hmm. It was for something in particular I wrote. And the way that they approached me about it was really oblique and sort of winking and nodding. And I go, am I in trouble or what? Like, mm-hmm. I can't even tell. Mm-hmm. And so I to answer your question, yes, there's risk. But I think more importantly, I didn't care. Okay. I, I wanted to do it, and that was going to overcome anything else. Well, I mean, I remember at the time I really uh, sort of admired what you were doing, just choosing to do it. Because you're talking to a guy who had to be dragged kicking and screaming into into Twitter even when you know, people at my day job are like saying, you know, you need to tweet more. Right. Um, you need to be on social media more. Um, and, right. I think, and, I, and I think part of that came from, you know, just the time that I was a journalist 
it was a time when, and at the company where I worked, when social media was really taking off, and that was Bloomberg News, they had a very restrictive kind of, you know, social media policy. Okay, they, yeah. they, did, they didn't want their reporters, you know, opining. They hadn't worked out that reporters could report on Twitter and sure. promote their work on Twitter. So, anyway. And when when was that? Like... 2009, 2010 okay. is where I, you know, and then I was out of there by, by 2012. Because I got on Twitter for Crew Jones Society in like 2008. But for whatever reason, I, I was extraordinarily anti-Facebook for the longest time. And it, it's hard to even remember why now. But I, I didn't get on Facebook until 2010 because the same story, the energy drink I basically lied on my resume and said I had social media experience. And I'm like, I should really have a Facebook account before I go work here. Listen, there's a very, very uh, long tradition of people lying about their experience well, sure. with social media, John, so don't feel too bad. Uh, no, and I only worked there for two months anyway, so I, <laughs> <laughs> what's the difference? So you, you alluded to this earlier, but what made you want to make uh, people's jobs the hook for this podcast? Well, A, I, I just I find it fascinating. And I remember I was getting my teeth cleaned one time by my dentist, and he started talking to me about the tax rates of the 1970s, like the late 1970s when he was getting started. Those two things go together, really. <laughs> of course. Yeah. <laughs> Dental examination, 1970s tax Yeah, th rate. these are normal conversations that people have all mm -hmm. the time, right, with their dentist? I'm with you. And so he, he was telling me, he's like, it was hard for me to, like find property that I could buy because the overhead and the cost of regulations were so much. And so this dovetailed into a conversation about his political philosophy. And I said to him, I'm like, so when you're, when you're a dentist or when you're in dental school, you don't think about things like property tax or, you know, the amount of overhead or dealing with insurance companies. You just want to be a dentist. Right. Mm -hmm. And he said, yeah, that's sort of amazing to me. Uh, another conversation I remember having was with my corporate job was with this guy. He was a petroleum engineer. And I said, Jeff, we were prepping for some presentation that he was doing like up in Cheyenne or something. And I said, Jeff, when you were a chemical engineering student at Texas A&M, in your life, did you ever imagine you'd be doing this much public relations? And he said, no, of course not. But at this stage of the game, not having an appetite or an aptitude for it can be very, very career limiting. So in terms of the jobs that we do, so much more goes into it than I think we appreciate. So there's that, number one. The second thing, and this didn't really occur to me until after last week's episode, episode 99 with Keenan, where he said to me, after the mics were off, he goes, you know, what are you trying to do with your show? You know, I sort of explained it to him, and he goes, but you're not answering my question. Like, what, what should I feel, think, or do after listening to this show? And I said... I think this show is designed actually to build empathy. Hmm. Like the biggest thing that I want to do is I want to take all these people and I want to talk to them. And as a result of that chat, I want you to walk away having greater understanding for what they do, mm -hmm. for the challenges that go into their job, the, the winding road that they took to success. Yeah. I think if we all understand each other a little bit better and, you know, I don't mean to sound like, you know, some fucking Hallmark card or something. But if we all understand each other a little bit better, I think we make the world a better place. Mm -hmm. And again, I mean, that's that's a cliche in Silicon Valley. Like, what does your app do? We're making the world a better place by. But in the case of this show, if we can all increase our empathy and if we can look at the people who who go and grind it out every day in industries that we either 
don't understand or don't understand enough. Or take for granted. Or take for granted. Yeah. Or even just the glamorous industries. Like there's there's a lot of glamorous stuff. And the reason that it looks glamorous is because of how much ditch digging you did yeah. to get to that glamour part. Yeah. It and, looks it looks easy. Right. But you didn't see the many, many attempts at bats, things that didn't work right. out so well, right? Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. And so by shedding a light on that, I I think we all increase our humanity. So it's funny you you mentioned success right so this is the successes that of people you've talked to and right and i feel like you talk to successful people and when i say successful what i mean is that they're proud of what they do and they're proud enough to sit in front of a microphone right um record an interview and share it with the world wide web if right we're, if we're still calling it that um you mean the series of tubes <laughs> yes absolutely <laughs> the series of tubes <laughs> Thank you, Ted Stevens. <laughs> right. um, may he rest in peace. So I'm wondering what you've learned about success from all the people that you've talked to. What have I learned about success? Success is a weird thing because I used to do this exercise when I taught public speaking where I'd say, if I say the word dog, and I'll just I'll, I'll ask you this right now. If I say the word dog, what picture comes into your head? Um, like an actual dog? Yeah. Yeah, I, I see an actual dog. Okay. Can you define that a little bit more? Like, what what does it look like? How big is it? What color oh, fur? Uh, I see uh, a four-legged animal with a head and a tail and brown shaggy fur. Brown shaggy fur. Okay. Uh, about how much does it weigh? Uh, 40 pounds. Okay. And what breed of dog is it? Uh, maybe like a setter or, or a... Golden retriever? Go- yeah, something like that. Okay. Yeah. So that's very telling. Okay, because I I would say that your picture is not all that uncommon. Hmm. But what I would say is that if I asked 20 other people to draw a picture of the dog that pops in their head, Mm -hmm. most people are going to draw their own dog, Mm -hmm. right? Assuming they have a dog. Um, I had one kid when I did that exercise, I said, when I say dog, what do you hear? And he goes, like, my dogs, you know, like my bros. And I go, Jesus, God. I'm like... (laughs) That that is not me. I'm (laughs) like... I'm like I got to I got to stop interacting with 20-year-olds. <laughs> but the point I'm making with that is that what I've learned about success is there really is no cookie-cutter definition of success. There right. is no template for it. And some of the people that I've talked to, yeah, I mean, they'll define success by money. Hmm. But I would say that is surprisingly exceedingly rare in these folks. Money becomes a byproduct of being able to pursue and excel at one's passions Mm. because I I think about the range of people I've had on this show and some of them have just tremendous financial success, Mm -hmm. but many of them are in the jobs that they're in because they were unhappy in previous jobs. Right. And it's weird. A a lot of the people who, who agree to come on this show, they almost self-select you know, it, is it a product of me looking at them and saying they have success? And so, hey, let's chase that and let's talk to them. Yeah. Sometimes other people, they just put out that energy that they're so happy with what they're doing and they're so proud of the work that they've done that it's almost like they're pre-vetted to be on the show. Yeah. I can't imagine someone wanting to come on this show if they hated what they did. They may <laughs> not like everything. Yeah, um, of course. And, you know, there's also often a certain there's a certain risk that goes along with, you know, if you hate your job, you go on a podcast, <laughs> and you talk about how much you hate your job, then, you know, 
Yeah, he'd take there your flamethrower. Con- there could be some consequences you got to grapple with uh, in, the, in the near future. Yeah, you bet. Next question. It's an important one. Okay. Have you read Harry Potter? <laughs> no. No, you haven't? No, okay. I, I have a feeling I'm going to. Yeah. Um, because, I mean, Kristen's a big Harry Potter fan. Uh-huh. But there's a writer for the AV Club named Kyle Ryan who has an aversion to, quote, wizards and shit. <laughs> <laughs> um, I share a similar aversion. That's a, that's a genre, wizards and shit, right? Yeah. I, well, Pete Holmes also has a joke about uh, anytime there's realms... You know, I'm pretty much out. Like, an old guy rides up towards the camera and talks to someone, gets off a horse and says, in this realm, I go, okay, (laughs) I'm good. So, uh, short answer, no, I haven't read Harry Potter. Okay. I can highly recommend it. And like you, I resisted. And um, my wife, like yours, was the person that that got me into it. And I'm I'm so glad that I did. But the reason I ask that question is because uh, the author of the Harry Potter series, you know, J.K. Rowling. Mm Mm-hmm. Someone you would think of as a success. Oh, very much so. You know, aside from her books, is sort of famous for this amazing speech that she gave at the Harvard commencement. I think it was back in 2008. And the theme was failure. Okay. So if you'll indulge me, I want to read to you part of that speech. Um, sure. And get your reaction to it. Um, so she says, failure meant a stripping away of the inessential. I stopped pretending to be myself, that I was anything other than I was, and began to direct all my energy into finishing the only work that mattered to me. Had I really succeeded at anything else, I might never have found the determination to succeed in the one area I believed I truly belonged. I was set free because my greatest fear had been realized, and I was still alive, and I had a daughter whom I adored, and I had an old typewriter and a big idea. And that's the end of the quote. I'm wondering what your guests have talk to you about or shared with you about failure like i wanted to know what you'd learned from success right how's failure played into their stories failure is interesting because it's almost never like people will be very very hard on themselves and i think about the interview i did with candace leclerc and that one was early that was like episode eight and she's a professional hairstylist Hmm. she's a beautician and she says people will sit down in her chair and look in the mirror and go, oh, God, I look so terrible today. And so part of her job is to be psychiatrist. And additionally, she says, you know, bitch, I've been looking in the mirror all day. Okay, I know everything that's wrong with me. So in, in some ways, it's almost toughened her skin. While people will talk about their failures and, and be very, very hard on themselves, what ha- what what I take away in listening to them is – because we're not talking necessarily about the failure, it, it becomes a footnote mm-hmm. on the road of their journey. Failure is is just I'm trying to figure out how to say this without sounding totally trite. To me, it means that it it wasn't the right opportunity, you know. And mm-hmm. and it's it's something that everyone learns from. And again, I I mean I I sen- I feel like I sound like Tony Robbins, you know, <laughs> when I'm saying this. And and I'm. I want this to be more than just pure banality Mm. because when I listen to people talk about their failures, I go, oh, my God, that failure equipped you to do something that you wouldn't have otherwise done. Right. And, I mean, listening to to that J.K. Rowling quote is really illuminating because 
you know, she says, I stripped away everything that was inessential. Mm. If you fail, then yeah, that forces you to recalibrate or recontextualize something in your life that was a miss. Yeah. And you get leaner, stronger, better uh, as you go forward. So failure isn't so much failure because people like to think of failure as a period at the end of a sentence. Mm-hmm. In the conversations that I've had, I found it's merely a comma right. and sometimes a semicolon right. where they go, okay, well, that that paused me for a second, but now I'm off on another tangent, another clause, yeah. another direction. Well, let me add that were it not for a huge failure in my life, I wouldn't be sitting here. We wouldn't know each other because mm. the reason I live in Colorado now is because my uh, my journalism career uh, back in Washington, D.C. basically ended in a mass layoff oh, okay. that forced me to confront what do I really want to do with my life. And at that point, what I really wanted to do was move into advocacy. And I had been kind of wrestling with that decision for some time, but that forced me to make a call. And I, I, ha- I had to make that call. And I ended up in a job that um, very quickly enabled me to actually come out here, and my wife and I never thought we would escape the orbit of Washington, D.C. <laughs> we never thought it imaginable. Wow. Why not? Uh, why not? Um, because the job security in Washington, D.C. is like oh, nothing right. you've ever imagined. I mean, as long as you're in the business of making an argument, <laughs> right? and you know me well enough to know that I... You, you do that quite skillfully. <laughs> Or, or at least incessantly. Well, well, <laughs> um, I mean, and okay. So your point is well taken because Washington is sort of a perpetual motion machine. Yeah. Of disagreements. Yeah. I mean, and look, that's sort of what it's there to do, right? Right. Of course. Um. Um. And we 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 would have made it work if we had you know moved to the Washington suburbs instead of the Denver suburbs. But as a family, we're so much happier now, and professionally, I feel so much more fulfilled. That's you know, good living the way we live and, and doing what I do for a living here instead of doing what was essentially the safe thing and what even may have been considered the successful thing back in the nation's capital. You know, that that's a really good point, too, because I had been looking to leave corporate for a long time. I, or I'd sort of been toying with it, been tossing it back and forth, and it really wasn't until a round of layoffs came hmm. that you're, you're confronted with a decision and you go, okay... I am no longer tethered to this thing that was on some level unfulfilling. Right. And the the calculus for that is going to differ from person to person. But on some level, every job that you have is, is lacking something, mm-hmm. right? You get that itch where you go, there might be something better out there. And I would say this is true of most people. But until someone forces you to a decision, the the inertia of it is pretty hard to escape. Yeah. And I mean, that's why it's so funny. I saw that movie up in the air and he sort of puts the idea in their head that, hey, this is a chance for you to do what you want. Right. And you go, OK, well, that's nice. But having never been through that situation, I'm like, is that really true? <laughs> <laughs> well, and the timing's always lousy, right? Yeah. Well, like, not, there, there's but, almost never. I mean, maybe I'm just too pessimistic, but I feel like, you know, there's. You can never get the timing just perfect. Right. You know, well, it, it, it always comes along at a bad time, and uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's a bad thing. Right. If you can get through that sort of initial panic. Well, I mean, the timing was <laughs> just, not to be contrarian, but the timing for me was flawless 
in terms of <laughs> okay. in terms of the the, wah, wah. The, <laughs> the way that I left my corporate job because I had some time to prepare for it. Mm. Now, anyone who didn't see it coming, because there were a ton of people laid off the same time I was, my heart just ached for them mm. because I felt it coming and I was prepared and I I even put my hand up and I said I'm ready to go. So that allows you some runway to really like get going but if it happens like frying pan to the face style yeah holy crap yeah um but if you talk to most hr people i think they say that you know 90 percent of people end up better off from the layoff yeah no it was more frying pan in the face for me yeah sure um in fact my you know not to dwell on it but just you know i think it's an interesting kind of anecdote as it turned out my last day in that job was the day our oldest child our first daughter was born. Oh, my God. It actually turned out really well because the severance was essentially, you know, extended parental leave. <laughs> um, but in that moment... Yeah, where's the money coming from? I was... Uh, I, I didn't feel like I was meeting my responsibilities as a husband or a father. Well, sure. Good um, Lord, man. But it all it all came good. Yeah, um, God, I guess so. So um, let me move on to my next question. Yeah. Uh, and that is one of the things I love about your podcast is that we hear from the guest, but we also hear from you. Right. And we hear a lot about, uh, about you and we, um, and you put a lot of yourself into, um, into your interviews and into this whole enterprise. So I'm wondering what you've learned about you from doing this that maybe, maybe you wouldn't have worked out. (laughs) It's funny to hear you say that because I feel like I consciously try and leave myself out of it. But I think that's more just with my discomfort doing the intros. (laughs) Like, in terms of doing this podcast, the intro is the part that I hate the most. Okay. Because for a while, I actually tried to riff like Mark Maron did. Mm. Like, I don't know if you ever listened to WTF, but he's got like 15 minutes at the beginning of it where he's just talking about whatever. That is one. That's a monologue, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, he's a comedian, so I, I guess that's those are muscles that are familiar to him. But I tried talking about things going on in my life and things I was into, and I'd listen to it back. I'm like, this is boring the shit out of even me, and I lived it. (laughs) So my goal is to focus primarily on my guests. But I guess, man, thinking back now, your question is a good one. Because when I spoke to Sahar Paz, she was a guest on the show. Mm -hmm. And that was a very powerful one because, I mean, she she had escaped Iran and you know almost killed herself and is now an inspirational figure in terms of motivating women and working in the fashion industry and she she just had a remarkable story and i met her through brandy shigley who is another she's been on the show twice she was a very inspirational figure and she said at the end of the interview i think she came into it a little bit guarded a little bit defensive a little bit like ooh i don't know this guy that well and you know he's a white man mm. which you know, I think she'd had some bad experiences with. But when the interview was over, she said, that was really good. That was better than most of the podcasts I do because you were willing to share stuff about yourself. You right. almost made the invitation for me to open up more because you were willing to open up first. Mm-hmm. And so I guess, I mean, I I learned to do that going through infertility because, and I've talked about that a bunch on the show, because I'm not afraid of it. Like our culture is afraid to talk about a lot of things. And so when I, when I opened up about it and I wrote blog posts, people just came out of the woodwork Mm. saying, Hey, you know what? 
I've been through this too. And so thank you for saying something about it. A lot of us have experienced that. So, I mean, what have I learned about myself? I think, (laughs) I think working for myself and having the realization that I've had problems with every boss I've ever had, except one, uh, you look at the balance of that and you go, uh, maybe it's not them. (laughs) (laughs) Um, okay. Maybe it's me and maybe my attitude is bad. And so by virtue of doing this podcast and anytime you invite someone to be on your show, it is both an incredibly humbling experience and a totally narcissistic one because you you're saying pretty much simultaneously that I I think you have value to come on my show and I'm I'm reaching out to you. I'm making this invitation and you can either ignore it or you know say fuck you or spit in my face or whatever. So to that end it's very humbling, but you're also saying, "Hey, I got a great show here." Yeah. You need to like you should take some time and come talk to me. So the point I'm making is I'm much more of a people person than I thought. Yeah. And I think doing this show and basically reaching out to so many different types of people, mm. people across, you know, age spectrum, employment spectrum, industry spectrum, getting their stories has made me go, "God, I love people." Yeah. And I love talking to people. I used to make the joke from the movie Clerks that at one point they're having an exchange and he goes, you hate people, but I love gatherings. Isn't that ironic? (laughs) (laughs) And I I used to think that I I was, you know, really sort of truculent and intransigent and just like, uh, I'm just me. Now, after doing the show, I'm like, no, I don't think that's me. I I think I actually really like people. Mm. I think I like connecting with people. And that has been just a huge revelation. I know that sounds ridiculous, but... Not not at all. In fact, I can relate to that pretty strongly because when I look back, this advocacy bug, I I think I always had it. Right. But... (laughs) You're a carrier. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. I started out wanting to be a lawyer um, back in Australia where I grew up, but I ended up in journalism. And I honestly think if, if if I look back, the reason that I took that fork in the road... It was because I wanted to overcome, as best I could, some pretty painful shyness. It's not like I'm not shy now. I'm still shy. I'm just a bit better at dealing with it right. than, I, than I used to be. And, and so I'm, so I'm so glad for that. And, and I hear some of that in what you're saying. Right. You've got you to knock a, another podcast out. It's time for another episode. You've got to find someone to talk to. You've got to pitch them. You've got to get them interested in the idea that this is going to be worth their time. And all of that stuff forces you to put your best foot forward right. rather than maybe just sort of sit back and, 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 and watch the, the world go by, which you can feel sometimes if you're a shy person. Well, um, what, what's funny, I'll just add two things to that. One, I used to say that I loathe small talk. I really, I used to. But the exception to that was I love talking to cab drivers. I will just talk a fucking cab driver's <laughs> ear off. And I... I don't know why, but <laughs> my friends are all like, dude, you, you have more like cab driver stories than anyone I've ever met. You just, you talk to them like you talk to no one else. And I don't know entirely why that is, but I also used to hate small talk because I had bad, bad social anxiety. Mm. 
the social anxiety used to be crippling. I used to have to go to these events when I was working at MGA and I'm in public relations. So, you know, people think we're all like super extroverts and, you know, right. super high charged and stuff. And I'd go to these events and I'd, I'd be talking to someone and I'd go, okay, could you excuse me for a moment? And I'd go into the bathroom, into one of the stalls, I'd lock the door and I'd just start fucking sobbing. Mm. I'd just start weeping because the social anxiety was so overwhelming I would just get these panic attacks that were paralyzing. Wow. And one of the ways that I actually developed skills as an interviewer was if I was talking to someone and I didn't know what to do or I didn't want to talk about myself for whatever reason, I've people, people may not believe this, but I, I actually really don't like talking about myself. Hmm. And what I learned to do was I was talking to this one guy about fishing and I was on the verge of a panic attack and I don't fish. I've fished like once in my life. I, I don't care. Like it's just, it's not my thing, but he was going on and on and on. And it was just, it was boring the shit out of me, but it was better than the alternative of having to circulate and go talk to someone else. Hmm. So I go, you know what? Okay. What is the question you least want to ask this guy next? Like to hear more about this fucking long fishing story. And it was something about one of the rods he was using or, the geography of where he was. So I asked him that question. He goes, Oh wow. All right. So let me tell you. And I go, <laughs> so you did the George Costanza thing. You were like, I'm going to do the opposite <laughs> of, of what my instinct tells me to Pretty do. Pretty much. Uh -huh. Um, because most people really like the opportunity to talk about something that they're interested in or yeah. something that they're passionate about. And so I learned it was a double win for me because a, I'm not talking hmm. and B, they feel really great about me. Yeah. They're like, this guy gets it. Yeah. You know, th this guy is just so much fun to talk to. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, yeah, you talked about yourself for the last 20 minutes, which, you know, is great for mm -hmm. both of us. But two things happened. I, I learned how to ask questions that would achieve that, number one. Mm. And number two, uh, I developed greater empathy. Because yeah. as much as I don't care about fishing, watching that guy get passionate about it, I got all fired up about it, too. I'm like, hey, great. Yeah. I was in uh, I was in the UK while the Rugby World Cup was going on and we watched this rugby game. I don't remember who they were playing, but they were explaining rugby to me and mm -hmm. at the end I go, "Fuck yeah, rugby. This is <laughs> I'm like, this game is amazing. Why like why am I not watching this?" It is. And I came back to the US and I watched it by myself, but I didn't have my little panel of experts next yeah. to me. Mm -hmm. And I go, oh, "Shit, I don't know what's going on." This isn't good. So, I've found R rugby is better with friends. Very much so, and especially friends who can sort of give you a little bit of help in contextualizing <laughs> the action. Yeah. Yeah. But I you know the point I'm making is the deeper you get into something the the you can at least develop an appreciation for it and develop some empathy for the people who are into it. Yeah. Well, I think it's that empathy that that um that I'm really driving at when I when I say that you put a lot of yourself into into the podcast because I I feel like you understand that there's a that's a two-way street that if you're looking to get a lot from someone Right. Uh, in terms of things they're willing to talk about, um, you've got to let them know that you're willing to kind of go out on a limb as well. And I, and I, and I see, well, I hear that a lot in the approach that you take, and I and I respect that. Uh, thank you. That's incredibly flattering. So let's talk about your job, since this is a podcast about jobs. <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, when you're not booking guests and recording interviews, what are you doing? So you're talking about deft communications. Yes. Yes. I so am. the um the the producer of this show uh when I do the outros, you know, I I give a plug to our sponsor which 
you know, four degrees, I just got to give them a shout because they've sponsored this show. Like all my costs are covered. I completely break even on this show, which is fantastic. A lot of people doing podcasts don't necessarily have that, but four degrees does our web hosting. They do our tech support. Uh, it's fantastic. Mm -hmm. And I adore them. Uh, I also, (laughs) I also say this is a production of deft communication. So what is deft? I've had like a decade of PR, which helps me go out and find guests. But the three legs of the stool at Deft are training, content, and engagement. So if you're not familiar with public relations, and the very first episode of this show was Mike Gone, who was the chairman at MGA, my old boss. Incidentally, I didn't... No, I did have problems with him, too. How about that? (laughs) Um, (laughs) But, I mean, God rest his soul. There were more positives there than negatives. But he talked a little bit about PR, and I hesitate to use PR because... It gets so affiliated with spin and publicity. Like people hear PR, that's what they think. You know, you're either someone's publicist or, you know, you're like like uh, that show House of Lies or, you know, you're just some spinmeister douchebag. A lot of what I'm doing is stakeholder outreach and coalition building. Right. So the training content engagement, the training, DEF does offer like media training and communications training and presentation training, any, any type of communications thing that you're doing, whether it's Toastmasters or going on the CBS Evening News with Scott Pelley. Right. Content, the things that fall into that bucket are letters to the editor, op-eds, newsletters, social media posts, constituent letters. I've ghostwritten more things than have actually had my byline on them, Right. which I don't think people always understand that that frequently happens, especially in traditional media mm-hmm. that when you see a guest's column in in a newspaper that's not always written by that person i guess i'm the the shadowy conspiracy behind them that's writing <laughs> um to well it's the same concept of people like the president of the united states doesn't write yeah he doesn't write his doesn't own write speech. speeches so right. you know the ceo of you know acme bank is likely not writing his own speeches or right. his own op-eds yeah he's got a thing. staffer I, and you know, everyone I've written something for has reviewed it and said yes. Oh, yeah. And and you try and align with their voice and you say, we want to make sure this actually sounds like you. Mm-hmm. Um, the other part is engagement. So are you – how are you engaging with the media? Do you want to do it more or better? Do you want to communicate with your employees? Are you dealing with employee attrition? You know, are you having a retention problem? Mm-hmm. So how can we use communications tools to improve your culture? Right. That type of thing. And the reason I'm hesitant to use PR is, number one, because people think of it in a pejorative sense. And secondly, I feel like a lot of the PR that I intersect with isn't always necessarily geared towards keeping its eye on the prize. Hmm. And what I mean by that is sometimes we're doing communication for communication's sake. Kind of arm-waving. Kind of, yeah. Mm -hmm. Where it's like, you know, this post that we did on Facebook got two million likes. Well, so the hell what? Like, to what end? Right. And I feel like not enough communications professionals are geared towards the bottom line. Like, what what did those two million Facebook likes get you closer to? Yeah. What, obje- uh, what objective did it go towards? Right, exactly. Or how did it increase sales? How did it – why would that tactically matter to your bottom line? Mm. And so that's why I kind of avoid that. I mean, that's a philosophical choice. Or sometimes you'll get PR agencies that are interested in winning awards. And I – Maybe I will in the future, but I don't submit for awards mm-hmm. because an award for a PR program it just feels a little too self-congratulatory for me. Right, and it's geared towards getting other clients. 
you you do client work to win awards. The awards help you get new clients, and it becomes like a snake eating its own tail. Yeah. So when you started this podcast, you were an employee, and now it sounds like you're an entrepreneur. Right. That's fair, yeah. Yeah. Do you like what you're doing better now than oh, what you did? So much better. This is a much better fit for me. And I feel like I've, I've talked about this a little bit, but I'll go into it with some more depth and say that when you are an employee and you have anxiety about your job, and I'm wired for anxiety anyway. Mm-hmm. I, I pretty much have it all the time about one thing or another. And you know this as a writer. Mm-hmm. There's a famous quote that says, I don't like writing. I like having written. <laughs> Yes. But the problem is if you're in any sort of content generation business where you have like an editorial calendar, as soon as I finish a piece, I think to myself, oh, great. I'm so glad that one's done. And like maybe 30 seconds after I'm done with it, like a little light flicks on that goes, all right, so what are you writing next? Right. I go, God damn it. Let me enjoy this. Right. What have you done <laughs> for me today? Right. So to that end, as an employee... I used to get anxiety, and they were largely due to forces beyond my immediate control. You know, whether they were money-related or project-related or personalities I was dealing with related, I perceived myself to have not a lot of agency in my ability to better my situation. Mm -hmm. Since I'm worried for anxiety now, I look at what I'm doing, and I go, okay, why do I have anxiety? And I get to the root of it, and then that propels me to action. So you can actually do something about it. Exactly. I'm like, okay, is it money related? All right. Well, then I got to get some more business in the door. And how do I do that? Hmm. Okay. Let's talk to this person. Let's let's chase this industry. Let's make connections here. Let's do X, Y, and Z. Yeah. So it propels me to action. Whereas before, it used to just sort of manifest as existential dread. Yeah. Where I'd wake up in the morning and go, oh my god, like I have to go to this place that makes me anxious mm-hmm. that I can't really do anything about. Mm-hmm. And that is a terrible feeling. And, you know, it started to affect, like, my depression and stuff, too. Mm-hmm. So now I, I'm much more active. And I think back to when I first started. And I talked to a potential client. And they said, you know, can you get us a proposal for this? And I go, when do you need it by? And they're like, I don't know, sometime end of the day, maybe tomorrow. Can you bang it out that quickly? And I go, yeah, I think so. And I looked at the clock and I had to come home and relieve the babysitter. And I had like 40 minutes to do it before I had to leave. And I go, all right, you know what? We're going to start this right now. We're going to do this right now because it's fresh in my head. And I got 40 minutes. Whereas if I'm working for a company where I'm salaried and the deadlines are a little bit more nebulous and in a corporation, you're frequently busy, but you accomplish little, Mm -hmm. at least based on my experience, because things move so slowly. It's like turning a cruise liner. Mm -hmm. I sat down and I banged it out. Whereas... If I were in a different environment, I might let that slide till tomorrow. I'd be like, ah, eh, 40 minutes, you know. Right. Well, and you'd be thinking about other stuff like, well, once I finish with the draft, who's going to have to take a look at it? And then who's going to have to take a look at that? And <laughs> Right. And then there are all these excuses to, you know, put off to tomorrow what could otherwise be accomplished today. Right. right yeah. You know. That's well stated, yes. Yeah. So it's like the anxiety is still there. Oh, it's yeah. It's just that you can use it in a constructive way. Yeah. Two weeks ago on episode 98, when I talked to the plastic surgeon, Dr. Buford, he said, and he was talking about something else, but it's like fire. Mm. You know, fire is a very useful tool. And when used properly and used in the hands of professionals, it can be very powerful and very beneficial. Now, in the wrong environment, in the wrong hands, 
it'll just burn you up. It's very dangerous. Yeah. So in terms of my personal mental health, I'm able to channel the fire in a more productive direction. Mm-hmm. Whereas before, I couldn't really do much about it, so it started to consume me. Mm-hmm. And I ended up very unhappy. Mm. Well, let's pivot to the future. Tell me about your wish list for future interviews. <laughs> who, who would you like really, really want to interview if you could pick anybody? Oh, jeez. If I could pick anyone. The, the people that I count as inspirations in my life, the people who have propelled me, either who play in the areas where, in which I'm passionate or who directly I sort of think of as, as inspirations. So someone like, if you turn around behind you, I have that weird sort of painting of Patton Oswalt. Uh-huh. Patton Oswalt to me is incredibly thoughtful. He tends to engage his trolls a little bit more than yeah. he probably should. But in terms of his body of work and his comedy and the types of projects that he associates himself with and the fact that he overcomes his depression, I mean, he just suffered an unbelievable setback in, in the loss of his wife. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's got his little girl and that just breaks my heart because that is someone that, that I've always taken inspiration from. Uh, any number of punk bands I would I would love to talk to. One of the biggest ones for me, just because it's played such an important role in my life, is uh, someone like Vince McMahon. Yeah, I've always I grew up loving professional wrestling, and I think episode eighty nine was with Nathan Lund, and we just talked about WrestleMania, like the entire podcast. And that one, I mean, I, I realized that one was entirely just for my benefit. I don't care if anyone else listened to that episode. <laughs> But that one was for me. That one was just fun. Well, what would you ask Vince McMahon? What would I ask Vince McMahon? I think I'd want to ask him about his relationship with his dad, honestly. Hmm. Because he bought the territory. He bought It used to be called the WWWF, the World Wide Wrestling Federation. And it was a Northeast Territory. And back in the, the 60s all the way through the mid-1980s, actually from the beginning of the pro wrestling industry in the early 1900s, it was a regional business. They were all governed by territories. They, these promoters had their own little fiefdoms. And when his dad uh, had failing health, he sold to his son and said, whatever you do, please don't put the other promoters out of business because we're a member of this thing called the National Wrestling Alliance. And you know I have agreements with these guys and longtime friends, and we have this way of doing business. And Vince basically said, fuck you. I'm going to do what I want. Mm -hmm. And he's always spoken very highly of his dad. But I think the reason I'm curious about it is I'm very close with my dad, and I've never done anything openly defiant like that to him. But it's interesting being in the same industry as your father Mm. because Vince Sr. and my dad in their respective industries cast a fairly long shadow. Yeah. And it can be challenging to determine the path that you want to take, knowing that that exists. Do I want to follow in that sort of very closely? Or do you know? Do I move to a different part? Do I carve out my own identity? Do I have a different focus? Do I do things differently? And in Vince's case, he chose the open defiance route. Yeah. And in my case, I mean, I, I work very, very well with my dad. But we're two very different people with two very different communication styles. And so... In terms of that, I'd just like to dig into that because I don't know that he's ever answered that to my satisfaction. And I'm not saying I could get him to do that. Yeah. But, you know, 
it, it, it would be worth asking. Well, speaking of um, fathers and sons who are in the same business, can I suggest someone that you should maybe want to consider pursuing an interview? <laughs> By all means. It's totally unoriginal, but, you know, we're both Denver Broncos fans. So I'm thinking Peyton Manning. I, I think if you want to, if you're talking about a, a podcast about the way people approach their jobs, yeah, I mean, that guy to me is one of the most thoughtful people in any profession that I've ever encountered. Oh yeah, and can articulate it too. <laughs> yeah, that, and and that's a real gift too. Yeah. So did you watch his retirement speech? Uh, I watched parts of it. I didn't watch the entire thing. Yeah. I I I, I watched the stream at my office and you're smiling right now because you know you've been a Denver Broncos fan your entire life yeah and I've been a Denver Broncos fan all of four years I think I helped you acclimate to it you did I mean when you talk about small talk which I'm lousy at <laughs> I remember asking your advice about how to how to get through some of those early conversations and do you remember the advice that you told oh me? yeah yeah I said if you're talking football Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you're not all that familiar with football, which I think at the time wasn't your strongest conversational suit, no. I said, you can just drop this line on any Broncos fan. <laughs> <laughs> just say, that Von Miller is a beast, didn't he? Yeah. And that, look, that was like circa 2013. Right. Before like Von Miller was really, you know, the Von Miller, right. the phenomenon that uh, that he is now. But um, Was that useful to you? You know, it was. Did it, you deploy that? Um a little bit. Mostly, I think it was just, you know, a kind of fun thing, you know, to, right. to like send you in an email, you know, <laughs> just yeah. apropos of nothing. Right. I think yeah. I wrote that on your Facebook page once. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you did too. I, I watched uh, I watched it live. I streamed it. And I felt a little funny doing it because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a transplant to Colorado and, and all that kind of thing. But, I mean, I don't mind admitting to you, John, I was – I had tears running down <laughs> my face I, uh, streaming because – I saw someone who loved what he did, yeah, could still do it well, mm-hmm. but couldn't maybe guarantee that he could do it to the best of his ability anymore. Right, and he was being given an opportunity to go out on top. Who and and even though that's a great thing, it was still a gut wrenching decision. Sure, um, and especially when the way he talks about what he does and and how and how he approaches the game, he was an athlete who wasn't the best athlete. Right. But he was the most thoughtful athlete. He was the most prepared athlete. He was probably the hardest working athlete. Probably, yeah. And I w- and I I mean, I'm just so excited to see what he does next, you know. Oh yeah. And to take that and apply it to whatever he does next, whatever it is if it's business or or, or sure. or, and, or or if it's coaching or owning a team or, or whatever. So I, I would I would love for you to get inside that head and 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 interview him the way that you've interviewed other people. Oh um, yeah, and uh, so well that's incredibly flattering, and I, I mean I I have two two reactions to this. The first is I'm incredibly moved that uh, that Peyton moved you. I'll, I'll say I'll never feel about Peyton Manning the way I feel about John Elway, because I mean. In Denver, we've we've seen this routine. We've been privileged enough now to see it twice. Right. Where one of the all-time greatest quarterbacks comes here, wins a Super Bowl, and rides off into the sunset. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Yeah. And so having witnessed that in, what, like 1999 already, when Peyton did it, I go, oh, yeah, that's nice. That's, <laughs> like, that, that reminds me of... <laughs> yeah. 
Well, well and listen, the other reason, if, if I can, um, if you'll indulge me, yeah. you know, we always project ourselves onto the people we admire. Right? Sure, yeah. We like to see something of ourselves in them, whether it exists or it doesn't, so that we feel part of their success and we can take encouragement from it. And what I took from, from Peyton Manning's you know, short but sort of a glorious career with the Denver Broncos was that you know, his family kind of rolled into town about the same time as mine did. Oh, nice. Okay. So you've got some synchronicity there. Yeah. And on, on, the, on the podcast that I did with you a couple of years ago, we talked at length about my story as an, as an immigrant and, mm-hmm. and as a transplant. And you know, I've, um, as an adult, moved around quite a bit after growing up in one place. And I, I, would nev- I would not go back and change a thing. It was the best thing that I could possibly do, but it comes with a lot of challenges. Sure. And so when you see someone who is starting over again at about the same same time as you are and to see them succeed and even more to see them succeed when there were many, many challenges and lots of questions asked and people doubted him to, to come back from all of that um, and, 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 and make it happen anyway. Right. Um, I just felt part of it. <laughs> um, yeah. So that's uh, fantastic. Yeah. So let me. Uh, to, I, I, I want to touch on something else, though, because this is important in terms of who I'd want to interview. I suppose if I sat down and really thought about it and wrote out a wish list, I could do it. Hmm. But what's starting to happen now? Number one, I you know at any given time, I have between six and ten active pitches out there hmm. because this show is a monster that eats. Yeah, you know when you're generating this much content. A lot of times you're just trying to keep the gears turning mm-hmm. and I end up hopping from sort of lily pad to lily pad to lily pad and I wish I had more bandwidth to be a little bit more strategic about it, but I don't. It's a challenge. Yeah. So you do the best you can. But what's starting to happen now is because this show's been around for more than two years and my suspicion is it'll take at least three before this starts happening in a really robust way, is I'm starting to have people reach out to me. Pitch you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're like, hey, yeah. and I've gotten it now from two different PR firms. Yeah. One was Dr. Gregory Buford. His web, I think it's his website team, found me, reached out to me and said, hey, he might be a good guest for your podcast. And I go, whoa, all right. Can more things like this happen? That That is a lot less spade work for me. And then I've got another one that I'm currently working on uh, in in the Wall Street sector. And I got pitched by her PR firm, too. I'm just trying to work it out. Mm-hmm. But... I'm interested in almost anything anyone is willing to pitch me because I'm not arrogant enough to think that I have all the great ideas of who I want to talk to. Now, I've got some glaring omissions here that that I haven't touched on, like industries. I'd really like to make the balance a little bit more between men and women. Like it's If you look at my past guests, it's pretty Mm dude-heavy. It's almost two-to-one dudes to women. And I'd like to highlight more people of color. I, yeah. I'd like to get a little bit more diverse because my podcast is pretty overwhelmingly white as well. Mm. But I haven't talked to anyone in law enforcement. And I've tried. It's hard. Yeah. Like, it's hard to get them to talk. Yeah. I'd like to talk to more elected officials. I had Greg Brophy on the show not that long ago. He's a yeah. former state legislator. Yeah. But, you know, Hickenlooper, Hancock, Gardner, Bennett, mm-hmm. a- any of the sort of like main elected officials here in Colorado, people who work in, um, I mean, I've talked to some people in the medical industry, but more people who are saving lives, Yeah, you know, and I have no one from the military. 
So, I mean, in terms of my wish list, you know, specific people, okay, it's more about industries, I think, for me. Yeah. And places where I haven't gone that often. Mm -hmm. And some of it's hard, man, because I end up talking to a lot of entrepreneurs because they have a lot less red tape to go through to talk to me. Yeah. Uh, If you're trying to talk to anyone from a corporate job, I mean, I know what our policy was in terms of media interviews, and it was pretty much don't do them. Uh, unless you were like the vice president or something. And so that's that's tough to overcome when you're creating a show that airs as frequently as mine does. Yeah. But I think that's the right approach. I mean, I think that looking strategically at, you know, what sectors of the economy, professional fields, yeah. you know, aspects of life have I overlooked? Yeah, you know, exactly. What, where are my blind spots and how do I then you know, turn those into, into opportunities to go and find a absolutely a new perspective. Well, and the big thing, one of the big things is I am not comfortable at all with guns. I I'm uh-huh. pretty profoundly anti-gun just in the core of me. And so on one of the episodes, I, I have a great friend who owns a gun store mm-hmm. and he, he loves them. He's, he's a huge advocate for, you know, uh, concealed carry things like that. Yeah. Second Amendment. Yeah, whole whole Second Amendment thing. And I said, you know what? I'm going to do my best to – I can't eliminate my bias, but I can lean into it. And what I really need to do is I, I don't want to be combative with him in the interview, but I need to demonstrate to him that I'm going to give him an opportunity to, to speak honestly and candidly without me attacking him. Yeah. And that was, I mean, that was a challenge because, because we have a difference in philosophy and I didn't leave that conversation having changed my mind about guns, but he gave me a lot to think about Mm -hmm. and he recontextualized things for me, which I thought was really helpful. And I thought, man, if I feel this way and he acquitted himself as he did, I thought maybe someone else will get some benefit out of that as well. And again, just build empathy. Yeah, I think that's great. And not to get off on too much of a tangent here, but the only interviews I ever get disappointed in, it's not in my guests. It's in my own performance. I want to create an environment that allows someone to just be who they are and reveal themselves in in a way that's truthful and authentic. Mm-hmm. And if I fall down on an interview, it's because I've either failed to create that environment properly or... I, you know, I'm not asking them the the right follow up questions or I'm not being open ended enough. I'll go back and listen. I'll be like, man, I really missed an opportunity on a question there. I should have hit that one. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's really the only time the show disappoints me. It's when I've failed, in my view, one of my guests and not allowed them to be either authentic or, you know, I, I haven't a- allowed them to open up and provide meaningful context where it could have been useful. Not that you're being too hard on yourself. Right. <laughs> I want to ask you um, about something that we have in common. We're both dads. Yeah. I'm wondering, the other parents that you've talked to mm-hmm. on this podcast, be they entrepreneurs or be they people in, in sort of, you know, uh, regular jobs that, that they love, have you learned anything or taken on anything from from their lives into your own in terms of how to be a good dad, how to be a good parent, and be, you know, a happy professional? The biggest thing is, especially, and this is something I've learned a lot in terms of my life, is when you are with your child, you owe it to them to be fully present. You know, not on your phone, not not diverted, not half paying attention. 
you know, either be with them or don't. So when you're not with them, and I, this is what I found with people who are exceedingly busy, but who I still count as really good parents is you got to make hay when the sun is shining. And in terms of balancing your personal and professional life, you know, being with your kids, because it's not always fun, but you owe your child nothing less than every ounce of effort that you have left. Now, in terms of your job, I like to say, people always ask me when I started my own company, do you work more hours? And if I'm answering honestly, not really. Um, I'm not so much working more hours. I'm A, working different hours, and B, I'm working much harder during those hours because I know that I've got to get this done. Otherwise, I'm shortchanging both my daughter and my business. And so the people I've talked to who, who have been out chasing their dreams and you know working the 100-hour the weeks, I mean, they're doing that, number one, to provide a future. And again, that's the financial piece where if, if that's how you define success, okay. But again, it's usually a byproduct. But it's to, it's to set themselves up to provide for their families in a way that is better than it was before. And B, the people who are happiest are not, are not usually fully focused on just one thing. I found that the people I've talked to love what they do but they also love having a family. And so basically translating the work ethic to your passion, to your family, is, is one of the common themes that I see through this. That sounds pretty good. Yeah. That sounds pretty good. Last topic. Okay. Two years ago, you brought me on the podcast to talk about being a recovering journalist, being an immigrant. Right. It's the 4th of July weekend. Uh-huh. And... I came to this country because of the First Amendment. Mm-hmm. You're a practitioner of the First Amendment. What you do is possible because of the, uh, of the First Amendment. That's um, fair, yeah. I just wonder, you know, your thoughts about the future of the First Amendment or the future of free speech in America and whether you feel uh, worried about it, given some of the trends that we see in, in, in politics and in society. Hmm. I worry about the First Amendment, yes, but not for the reasons you might think. I feel like the First Amendment will always be there to protect us, and I'm not worried about someone coming from the top down and saying, you know, you can no longer say what you want to say. Like, your opinion is no longer protected by the Constitution. That doesn't worry me. Mm -hmm. What worries me is we seem to have a culture of disrespectful discourse from the bottom up where we treat each other poorly and people will hide behind the first amendment with just repugnant views and just really acid rhetoric and really sort of uh, embarrassing disregard for our, our norms and mores as a society. Mm-hmm. And I worry that if we continue to let the discourse erode as a culture on a grassroots level, if we don't treat each other with respect then the First Amendment is going to become meaningless for when we actually have something to say. So no one's going to come in and take it away from us. Like, I don't worry about the FCC coming in and saying they start regulating speech on the Internet, things like that. That doesn't so much worry me. Mm. But what worries me is that we're going to kill it ourselves if we don't start treating each other with a little bit more respect, a little bit more dignity, and a little bit more empathy. 
Are you talking about sort of um, intolerance for those who disagree with you? I think so, yeah. People people who basically retrench instead of listen. Hmm. People who only get into the echo chamber and listen to things that with which they agree. So if someone else comes in and says, hey, have you considered this? It's like, fuck you, you're not with us. You know, you're a fucking pinko or a socialist or, you know, uh, a capitalist pig or however you want to couch it. Mm-hmm. If we keep doing that to each other, you're going to make the First Amendment totally pointless and irrelevant because we need it to express disagreements. And if we lose the ability to, to express disagreements, we lose a lot as a culture. And, and you render everything that we fought for just almost like, why, why are we protecting this? Maybe we should shut some of these fucking people up. You know what I mean? And that type of discourse is just very, very harmful to us as a society. Yeah. If you demonize the people who you disagree with, then you start to rationalize the idea of, well, maybe they don't deserve the same rights that I have. Exactly. Right. That's the type of thing that, that frightens me. Yeah. Well, John, you're a great thinker. <laughs> okay you're thank good, you uh you're a good talker keep asking questions keep doing a great job it's been a real pleasure thanks man thanks thank, for agreeing to co-host thanks for letting me turn the tables on you and ask you some questions i appreciate it man and that's the hundred i hope you enjoyed it man that was fun for me sitting on the other side of the mics and i'd just like to say thank you first of all and foremost to simon lomax what a great job and i knew he would I knew he'd be exceptional. He's just a super thoughtful, super intelligent, and a wonderful guy. And I cannot thank him enough for taking some time out and interviewing me on my 100th episode. And thank you to you for listening to this show. Whether this is your first episode or you've been with me for all 100, I know technically there's been 103 episodes since I've had three solo episodes, but for all 100 numbered episodes, thank you, thank you, thank you for being a part of it and i look forward to 100 more 100 and beyond so check out john of all trades on all the platforms we're available the homepage is john of all trades.us j-o-n of all trades.us and then the four social media platforms facebook twitter snapchat pinterest all four of those are at j-o-a-t pod we're also available on itunes and stitcher just search John of All Trades. You'll find us there. You can give us a rating. You can give us a review. Both of those things are helpful. I don't really know how, but please give us a rating and a review if you feel so inclined. And then, you know what? Hit that subscribe button. You'll get every episode delivered right to you with no effort. And I've got great, great things coming. Now, I know the outro music is winding down here, and that's fine, but I just need to say a few more things. This is July 6th that this episode is going up. Five days from now, my second child is going to be born. So sometimes the universe is cool, and sometimes it's very serendipitous. And it's amazing that I'm hitting this milestone on the podcast at the same time that another milestone in my life is happening. It's a nice bit of synchronicity, and something that just means the world to me. So I'm in an incredibly grateful mood. First of all, to you for listening, but more importantly, to my wife, for supporting me in doing this crazy endeavor. I know this is a weird thing. I know it takes time out of our day. As I record this outro, I have just conducted another interview this afternoon. I know I disrupt our lives by this. I know we have a great sponsor in 4 Degrees who I plug during the show that covers the cost for this, but the real investment is the time. 
the time that I make in trying to make these interviews good for you, the listener. I want them to be meaningful to your life. I want them to be impactful. I want you to have a new prism with which to view the world. That's important to me. As much as we can build empathy for each other, the better off we all are. And if I can do that in any small way by bringing you these shows, then I am just thrilled to do so and eternally grateful that you allow me to do it. So thank you for being with me through the 100 episodes. I can't wait to see what's next. I've got a new baby on the way. I may have to rewrite the outro where I conclude every episode by saying, say goodnight, Gracie, because that's in honor of my first daughter. And I've got a second daughter coming. So we'll see what happens. In the meantime, just a small programming note. There will be a new episode next week. I've already got it locked in the can. So if I don't sound exhausted, that's why. I've already done it. It's already produced. It's fantastic. I cannot wait to bring it to you. And I've got more in the can as this new chapter in my life unfolds. So thank you, thank you, thank you. I adore you. I appreciate you. And you know what? For now, say goodnight, Gracie. That's good, Johnny.